Hello. Hey. Actually, before we start, I wanted to complain. You know, I, I showed you that wicked burn mark I had? Mm-hmm. So, listeners, I burnt myself making scones because I was baking in a crop top. PSA. Be careful if you bake in a crop top. Or cook <laughs> in general. <laughs> yeah, I just ran the pan right smack in my belly. And it is right, like, where my belly runs into my desk. And so <laughs> I just have to, like, keep leaning back awkwardly, like, oh, nope, can't do that. Uh, ouch. Yeah, it's a little unpleasant. That's okay. Maybe I will have a cool scar. <laughs> You can make up a cool story as to how you got it. Yeah, I'll be like, I got into a fucking duel. No worries. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so let's get going. Today, we are here to talk about part two of our food and capitalism episodes. This basically will cover everything else that's in Omnivore's Dilemma by Michael Pollan. So if you want to go ahead and stop now and go back and listen to the first one, if you haven't or whatever, that's fine. So to start this out, I kind of wanted to do a little backtracking and talk about like the title of the book and kind of the main thesis this book posits. Uh, We didn't get too into it last time, um, but I think it kind of helps frame some of the other stuff that he writes about. So the title, The Omnivore's Dilemma, is the idea that uh, because humans and other species, like rats notably, uh, can eat lots of different things, you know, plants, animals, minerals, fungi, we have to spend more time and energy figuring out what to eat. Um, There's a lot of debate over just when human brains like evolve to be bigger, but a lot of it points towards like our first forays into cooking and eating meat. Um, And so this whole relationship with food takes up a lot of brain space. And so Pollen kind of further posits that even though basic evolution covers a lot about how we you know, actually know what is good to eat, you know, what's a poison mushroom, you know, what's good for you and what's not good for you, based on like super basic factors of like, oh, we're predispositioned to like sweets, you know, we dislike bitterness, which often is a result of like toxins in a plant that can kill you. We are naturally revulsed by like rotting meat and like eating other humans and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So like we have those basic guidelines. But he posits that Beyond that, it's much more difficult for Americans because he thinks that we lack a like secure enough food culture. And so we are especially susceptible to fads like dieting um, and just trendy foods and then also marketing and that whole sector. Is he when he says America lacks a secure food culture, does that just mean like it's like it's kind of um it's uncertain for a lot of people where they're getting their food. Is that what he means? or No, he's not using it in terms of like food security. He means it in terms of like a stable culture. Like, let me give an example. Like in contrast, a lot of scientists and like nutritionists and people like that are very confused by what's called the French paradox, which is, you know, French people as a culture eat a lot of butter and cheese and wine and like you know, fucking pate, things that are very usually not good for you. But when you look at like their health, they generally are pretty healthy people. And so there's a lot of confusion and head scratching over like, okay, is it like the types of things that they're eating? Um, Is it how much? Pollen kind of posits that it's a cultural thing. Um, Apparently in French culture, you don't ever really eat alone. Um, You don't typically go back for seconds. Um, It's a very like drawn out a meal takes a while and you're like, you know, it takes longer 
and it's like an affair, you know, like it's a whole uh, to do. <laughs> yeah. And plus at the end of it, you got to walk or bike back home. We uh, you know you probably walk 20 times more than the average American does. Cause you can, because your cities are built differently. <laughs> exactly. And we, we were watching that, this show, <laughs> this ridiculous show about toddlers in Japan. <laughs> And it's like they go on errands by themselves and like me and Gray just kept being like, how can they, like everyone watching it, like our whole family was like, how can they do this? And it's like, it's because they have the infrastructure for public transportation and like a community. <laughs> yeah. Just plain walkable cities and stuff. <laughs> yeah. I think that's huge. Pollen, I think kind of goes too hard the other way. Like he definitely gets into, you know, some fat shaming territory and some just like general crankiness about the whole thing. Like, man, it's cool. <laughs> you know, like. He gets very judgy. His thrust is food versus like other aspects of living healthily, right? Or living in a in a balanced way. Yes. I mean, he also talks shit about like, I don't know, like he was like, well, yeah, we're still like really fat and unhealthy and all that stuff. And I, he does mention, I think, you know, that we're more se- uh, sedentary, things like that. But yeah, you're right. His his main thrust is that it's it's the food culture that we're lacking and the way he compares it is like he talks about like a quote unquote average American family in terms of like how a marketing department would look at them and all the different segmentations of that market of, oh, now we can get so-and-so driving in their car on the way to work. And then um, they're in a hurry. So they like grab a prepackaged meal for that. And like, it's all very separate and very convenient. And to me, I look at that and I'm like, instead of griping about the culture of like, why we're okay with that. Why aren't we grappling with the system that forces you to make those decisions? (laughs) I think that's a good point. That would be a better avenue of critique. Like you said, he he doesn't necessarily go in a leftist direction so much as just kind of point out problems, you know? Yeah. And, and I think he does do a little bit of the work. Like he, he correctly points out that because of this, you know, what he would call a lack of food culture or a lack of defined food culture, marketing departments and corporations very readily step up to fill that role for us. And like, think about how often health advice changes to like, oh, red meat is bad for you. Oh, like red wine is bad for you. Just kidding. Maybe those things are good. Like, <laughs> you know, like every year it switches. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the coffee. Coffee. Yeah, that's coffee, another wine. Uh, <laughs> napping. Uh, yeah, everything is like either going to make you live forever or give you cancer, basically. The food industry in general, like they do that too, of like, oh, carbs are terrible. Oh, no, carbs are good. Like they don't fucking know. But the food industry is better off if we all have a collective anxiety about what to eat so they can market us new products. Because if you remember last time, we talked about how the natural rate of growth for the food industry is 1% to match the population rate. And they don't want that. They want to create new markets. Yeah, and now in this phase of capitalism, maybe the only market to expand in, I mean, we're already seeing that with NFTs and everything, is just, it's uh, its your mind. <laughs> it's like, hey, <laughs> pretend that this is worth something, you know? Oh, yeah, and like, Pollen even gives the example of, and this has actually already been done in, in something called Olestra, which is a, the maintenance phase is a great episode about it. It's well, it's a fat that's used in certain products. I think the main one was like chips and cookies or something. Mm-hmm. I mean, sorry to get gross. It slides right out of you. It has no nutritional value. It just gives you the feeling of eating without any of like anything. Like it's just terrible. 
And if you think about it, that's essentially the NFTs of food. It has no nutritional value and is just like something that will generate profit. <laughs> well, who does it generate profit for? Like, is it useful in the cooking process of something? No, it's marketed as like a health food because it's like, well, you can eat and it'll be fine. Oh, okay. All right. Well, then, yeah. And <laughs> I think the thing you were saying with the different diets, you know, cycling through them is interesting because used to be we would have kind of a monoculture. So, we, you know, everybody would see the same network shows and like, right. So you would have to essentially cycle through these dieting fads or whatever and say, okay, this one's the new hot one. The other ones are bad, you know, and, and cycle. Now with everything so compartmentalized and splintered. Oh, is it keto? Is it, yeah, all the different diets. Right. You can do them all at once. And so you can make money off of all these people and just bounce them around between different ones. And, and, and they can they can cycle through themselves, but you can always be making money off of all of them. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I read about this one chicken plant that they do all the same processing, right? Like they, they, it is one operation. They slightly alter their product by like very small means in order to produce like a regular chicken, an organic chicken, a kosher chicken, an Asian market chicken that like still has the feet and the head on it. Like these, this is all the same fucking chickens. <laughs> it's just like slight variations in the formula. Yeah, they just run the assembly line like a, just a little different each time for part of the day. Like or run kosher chickens for an hour. <laughs> exactly. Like, okay, this one gets the organic corn or whatever. And this one, you know, like it's it's just, it's hilarious. Like it is all... I mean, yeah, there are some very small differences, but it is mostly marketing. Another thing, like I already mentioned the French paradox, I wanted to call out a couple of other uh, cultures that um, kind of prove that we don't maybe, like, I don't know, and I'm not trying to say like, nutrition is all bullshit, but like a lot of traditional cultures seem to have nutrition figured out. And like, it's really interesting. Like, if you take the example of sushi, you know, you could say, yeah, eating raw fish sounds like a bad idea and a way to get sick. What is often paired with sushi, though, is wasabi, which is a natural inhibitor of bacteria. And like people figured out very early on, like how to combine different foods to make them like the most nutritious. Yeah, I think in the documentary, they had the maybe it was in that they had the beans and the corn thing. And like how, you know, when you eat these together, they, you know, activate the protein and everything. Exactly. Yeah. And like, I find that interesting because I feel like a lot of fad or diet culture of food is honestly very like white centered and so like it's nice to be like hey like you can still have your fucking like beans and rice guys <laughs> you know yeah yeah and i think i don't know there's tons of stuff that's wrong with like dieting as an approach or anything sure you know but one of them surely is like just this whole notion that like regular foods Throw that all out. You need to be eating like <laughs> these new foods. of chicken breast or, you know, just, yeah, you have to be eating something that is very clearly diet food. I don't know. That's always weird to me. It's like, well, how could I, why would I make my life like that? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And I think that's the thing is that like people are so stressed that they can turn to those things. Like, you know, Soylent fucking exists. You know, <laughs> some people are really just like, I don't know. So I just eat this every day or something like that. If you like, Soylent, that's fine. It's you fine do. if you like it. Like fucking, <laughs> like if that's your bag, go for it. <laughs> or if you're like, yeah, too lazy to make a meal. That's you know, we get it. It's fine. 
or it's convenient for you or whatever. Do your thing. But it is like, it's kind of weird as a culture to have that. <laughs> definitely. And like, I I think, oh yeah, Pollen definitely takes the individual's approach of like, oh, food is this like quasi-religious experience that we should all be investing more time and money into. And I'm like, yeah, but maybe not the money part, but like, yes. <laughs> well, but also with what? Like, where, where are you, you going to lend me some time, man? Like, yeah, exactly. I'm like, no one can do that. A lot of people fucking can't. Yeah. And I think we're both sort of lazy in our ways and like do kind of have some time that we could devote to various things. I know I just like waste a lot of my time. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Me too. And I always complain, oh, I don't have time to do it. I, I know I do have the time, but a lot of people straight up don't. I mean, a lot of people. So, are, yeah, a lot of people can't. Yeah. People working multiple jobs, like with kids and like all kinds of shit. Like they don't have time to make a fucking home cooked, like organic meal or whatever. Like that's not going to happen. Yeah. So I think that this is important. Because sometimes we think of like, okay, what role does the way we eat, you know, how does that interact with our, with the leftist movement and stuff? Like, what are we trying to do? And, you know, one thing that doesn't seem like it's very helpful at all is to kind of take this approach and say, hey, you need to be putting more time into figuring out your diet and how you eat and everything doing your part to like be sustainable and all that. Cause like, that's how every medical, like that's how insurance treats it, you know, or like doctors treat it. They act like it's all up to you. Right. Like do self help, self care, mental wellness, all that, you know, do that yourself. Like figure that out. But it does need to be a part of our movement in terms of like, we need to be considering how to build a society that makes that an important thing. That creates the conditions where that's possible. Yes. Yeah. That, you know, to kind of buzzword it empowers people, but like, you know, <laughs> that makes it easy to do that. Right. And makes it like desirable to easy to, and you know, a something also that's valued by people instead of something that's like last minute. I, I don't know. I think that people do see it as important generally, you know, if they, if they're given the chance, it's just so hard for so many people to. Oh, for sure. Like, we've all been put in a position where it's like, fuck, I don't have time for anything else but a drive through Like, I got to do it. Or I, I do think food is such a big cultural factor. And I think that's why I, I kind of, you know, quibble with Pollen's characterization. I think, like, ideally, yeah, this would all be really important and accessible and something we're all into. Like, maybe not. Maybe some people are like, yeah, fucking hate food. Like, okay, mm -hmm. don't super get it, but sure. But like most people you talk to are like, yeah, I fucking love food. <laughs> it's just they don't have the the knowledge or the accessibility, you know, the access to time or any of those things to start. You know, often price is a huge factor if you're like, well, I don't know. You know, I don't want to waste my money on something I don't know how to cook. I don't want to buy like a nice cut of meat and not know what to do with it or a nice pan and not know what to do with it. Like there's a big like snobbery gap in cooking too that I am definitely a part of. <laughs> Listeners, I am a big foodie. <laughs> you? <laughs> Blame my husband and the Food Network, <laughs> but mostly my husband. Uh, but yeah, I see what you're saying. There's there's a big gap. I think a lot of people want to. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people would if they could. Like I feel like most people have very positive food memories of, you know, a home-cooked meal. And like people kind of know that's something they should be striving for or want to strive for. I guess one easy way to think of it is imagine if everyone worked like four hour days. <laughs> Why wouldn't we make ourselves? 
I mean, I'm not talking a gourmet lunch every time or you have to do brunch, mandatory communist brunch hour. <laughs> okay, I would okay. do that. It's not the worst thing. <laughs> In my commune, the... yes. <laughs> there are worse edicts that we could pass, believe me. But <laughs> All right, so, you know, but you imagine people would like make themselves a nice lunch maybe or brunch or mm-hmm. breakfast, wherever they want to do it, you know, or they did spend some time and have dinner with friends and family and Whoever, like it would be a, a more treasured experience because they'd have that window of time to like do that. Oh, for sure. Like that's a that's honestly what we do for fun. <laughs> yeah. But so many people and myself included some days come home and we're just fucking tired and we're just I'm just going to eat ramen or something, you know, just slop something processed together. And I mean, it's good to have those for comedians. I'm not saying like you would never have prepackaged things under communism. Yeah, because there's definitely people who like require that. Like if you are living with a disability or something, like you can't like, you don't have the energy or something to cook. Like, yeah, you need access to those kinds of foods. But I think you should also have the option to have access to like fresh cooked food if that's something you want. Yeah, like that's that's something that should be, that should, like you say, it should be there, but it's not a necessity that you have, that you can only, that's all you can get is, you know, happy meal level, you know, nutrition. Yeah. Cause I want to be careful about like completely demonizing prepackaged food. Cause I, I, this kind of like set me back in my, my foodie ways. I saw like this tweet of someone putting people who use like granulated garlic in like a plastic jar, like one of those big ass jars, uh, like just making a joke, like who the fuck like, uses these? What, like minced garlic? <laughs> like, yeah, minced, sorry, not granulated. I get those mixed up. So like the little chunkies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And somebody was like, I'm, I'm disabled. Like I have to use this. I don't have like the the dexterity and the, you know, the energy required to like hand peel chop garlic and chop yeah. it. Like that's what I have to do. And I was like, yeah, I've never considered that like a lot of cooking is physically demanding. So like, yeah, we have to be able to provide those options too. For sure. For sure. And not just prepackaged things, but also, you know, we've, I guess maybe we've talked about this before of like, you know, having good communal places to eat, like to eat out, to go and enjoy a restaurant meal and everything for free, of course. And just like with your friends and all that, but like that should also be a thing. It should be. Okay, so let's get into some of the other areas of the food economy that are still a little fucked because you may have listened to the last episode and you're like, oh, maybe I should just like go buy organic. Is that better? And the answer is sort of. (laughs) (laughs) It's complicated. It's sort of better to buy organic. I would, I feel comfortable saying sort of because a very first thing you gotta know is still a business. It, it made $56.5 billion in the United States in 2020. So like, is capitalism, guys, like it's gonna do capitalism. You cannot walk the blameless path <laughs> within capitalism. So you're still gonna, you know, you're still gonna be interacting with its various sins. <laughs> yes. But I, before we get to where it is today, I want to do a brief little look back on some of the organic movement Interestingly, I, the first like use of the word organic, like in, in kind of the social critics of the time was in the 19th century. And this was to contrast the Industrial Revolution. Mm. They were decrying the atomization of society and the lack of cooperation. And I think that's really telling. <laughs> yeah. Because if you think about our conversation about like 
the food marketing execs looking at an American family and how to divvy up their day so they can have a product for each part of the day to eat. That's atomization, (laughs) y'all. Yeah. So instead, seeing that more as like a full organism, organic, like a full part of a whole. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of the start of a lot of organic knowledge was in uh, the 1940s. You started getting these kind of magazines coming up, which like to me, that's very early. (laughs) One of them was called Organic Gardening and Farming. And I just wanted to read this review for the magazine. (laughs) All right. It says, I believe that organic gardeners are in the forefront of a serious effort to save the world by changing man's orientation to it, to move away from the collective, centrist, super-industrial state toward a simpler, realer, one-to-one relationship with the earth itself. Pretty highfalutin stuff. (laughs) Yeah, very ambitious. (laughs) Yeah, but like even in the kind of early text in the 40s and 50s, and then you definitely see it in the 70s, like the 60s and 70s, there's this like kind of anti-capitalist or anti-industrial at least streak to these food movements. Yeah, so it's kind of it comes across kind of as back to the landy. Definitely, and and that's where you get all like the co-ops and communes and that kind of food counterculture that that hit its peak in the 60s. People's Park in Berkeley, which was also featured in our Angela Davis episode, has some roots with this too. In in 1969, there was a group called the Robin Hood Commission, uh, who basically did some digger action. They seized a vacant lot owned by the University of California and started planting food. Hell yeah. <laughs> they wanted to create a new cooperative society based on uncontaminated food. Nice. Uh, before we get to much further down this road stupid question um from me but you know if you're a listener who had the same question i'm not calling you stupid i'm uh, you know you're cool primer definition what what does organic mean that's a good fucking question (laughs) all right that definition will radically change as we go forward. At the, this point in the 60s and 70s, it was explicitly a rejection of the military-industrial complex because it, by rejecting these chemicals, they're saying, you know, Dow and Monsanto make these fertilizers and they also make Asian orange and napalm and we're not okay with that. So we are making natural food as like a political statement. So natural food, meaning like they're not using... In this case, it's like no no chemicals, no pesticides, no fertilizers, just, just fucking seeds and dirt. <laughs> All right. So no artificial fertilizer or pesticides. Yeah, I guess like, artificial because you could still, you know, put poop on it. Yeah, it's inexact <laughs> to say no chemicals because it's, you know, everything's chemicals, but... <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So at this point, it's an extremely radical definition. And what is super fascinating is how this movement gets completely watered down through capitalism. Like you can trace the origins of a lot of these organic companies. Um, Like I think Horizon, who does like all the milks, uh, Earthbound, which does a lot of the veggies. They start out like going to these fucking hippie ass farmers markets, just like, oh yeah, we grow lettuce and like whatever. And then they start getting bigger and bigger contracts and they have to keep up. And guess what they end up doing, guys? Factory farming, just slightly better. (laughs) So how do they maintain, oh, I'm organic, but not do it as much? So a lot of that has to do with regulations. 
when you start going from kind of your rinky-dink operations to like the larger operations, you, they kind of start taking off because actually we have some food scares in our economy. Um, mm-hmm. You know, things get tainted. Um, one in particular was, I think, something that was like used on apples and it ended up like being bad for you. And so there was a big scare about it. And then people are like, okay, maybe I should buy organic. And so like there was a huge demand. And so they began taking off. Um, and that's when they had to start scaling up. And so the Department of Agriculture then had to like create standards for certified organic. Here's the problem. <laughs> All right. You know how like their best friends are like big agriculture? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Funny about that. They wanted to basically leave room for them to get in the game uh, because they were worried that if they set these standards for organic, then it would give a stigma to all non-organic food. And like even to the point where you have like the secretary general just straight up saying like organic food is is no better for you than the other food. And, you know, just like making it very clear, like this is just a, a marketing tactic. but here are the guidelines for said marketing tactic yes so some of the (laughs) guidelines are (laughs) in 1997 i think like one of their earlier drafts of this they allowed for gmos they allowed for irradiation which basically means instead of you know washing your stuff and making sure it's not tainted you can just blast it and you know whatever there might be poop in there but it's very clean poop (laughs) (laughs) Uh, very lax sewage standards and as these standards continued to be modified and updated big organic companies won more of the battles Um, you could basically have a factory farm that was to the naked eye to the untrained eye looks exactly the same as a regular industrial farm you know non-organic because of the little thing that i think you and i will chuckle at which is the beautiful word of every liberal's heart called access. <laughs> Ooh, all right. Yeah. Love me some access. A lot of the animal-based rules are around access to pasture, but that can mean fucking anything. It is unenforceable. You can get organic milk from cows who like never eat grass, but it's organic because they eat grain that was grown organically. Whoa. <laughs> So, you know, you look at the picture of the milk, it's got the happy cow in the fields, mm-hmm. and you're like, I'm doing a good thing. <laughs> but he ate happy grass, but he himself was not a happy cow. Or she was that. <laughs> or happy corn. It doesn't fucking matter. <laughs> so it's not like they're actually, because as we talked about last time, cows can't digest corn. It's very bad for their tummies. <laughs> <laughs> so I drive like an old car, you know? But... I drive on the same roads as like fancy Teslas and all that. Like, so it's pretty much the same as having one of those, right? Like I can tell people (laughs) I I drive a Tesla. Yeah. Because you're in the same road. (laughs) Yeah. I drive the same roads as they, I mean, yeah, it's basically that, that same (laughs) amount of logic. Um, a similar role with chickens. They have to, if, you know, if you ever hear free range chicken, you assume, yeah, that chicken's living outside all the time. It's fucking great having a chicken time of its life. Yeah. Partying. Apparently, that just means they have to have access to a yard. And most operations, they don't give them access to the yard till later in their life because, like, they will not have the immune system to deal with it. It has to be a pretty, like, 
not hermetically sealed, but like pretty tight environment microbially because they are still pretty crowded, but they're not giving as many like antibiotics and stuff because there's rules around that. So they don't let them out until like two weeks before they kill them. (laughs) So it's a it's a retirement party. Here's the thing, because these chickens have never been outside, most of them don't go because they're like, why the fuck would I go out there? I've never been there. Yeah, <laughs> slash that they door? can't walk and like all this other stuff. <laughs> yeah, there's just, it, it's a meaningless term for a lot of these things. All right, so free range doesn't help. Uh, what was the other one that we just said? Organic cows. Organic, yeah, organic milk. Um, organic milk doesn't help. Organic beef can just be fed on, listen to this combination of words, organic high fructose corn syrup. <laughs> it's organic corn, though. Organic high fructose corn syrup. <laughs> what is that like? What's the analogy there? I, oh, I don't even know. That's like... It's like a designer Ziploc bag. Hmm, I like that. Like hand-sewn, artisan-made something dumb right or but something it's from like plastic mass for, yeah like <laughs> just uh hey, you can make cool things that plastic, but not just like something or like uh artisanal toilet paper i don't know like, <laughs> wow that's wild uh i heard i have heard that dairy cows in general though have like pretty nice lives like they're kind of pampered compared to other you know livestock i guess no not really <laughs> I mean, they're, they're very stressed whenever you take their calves away from them. Um, you know, they are spe- still spending all their time inside most of the time. Um, it's it's not really how a cow is meant to live. You know, they're often still fed corn, like we talked about. They have a lot of the same problems. Hmm. Okay. So, yeah, we'll get to kind of the treatment of animals later. But in general, I, I think it's still not great for most of these. And you can tell, like, these rules around them really... They're not for the animal's welfare in the vast majority of cases. It's it's in order to make room for big operations and their, you know, efficiency. Okay, yeah. When you get to, like, environmental impact, I think that's when you start to get more of the benefits of organic produce, specifically meat a little bit as well. It's definitely better. You know, you're not using pesticides that are, you know, harming the skin of workers who are, like, doing work on the farm like you are with other you know farms there's no like nitrogen runoff and other pollutants it's overall better for the soil earthbound one of those big companies uh, that does like pretty much a lot of the produce you'll see in like whole foods and stuff like that they claim to have saved an estimated uh 270,000 pounds of pesticide and a million pounds of petrochemical fertilizer by converting farmlands to organic. Uh, these are kind of old numbers. I, I haven't looked up the most recent stats on that. But you can tell, like, yeah, it's a net good to not have those things in the system because we talked about last time, like, yeah, that's very bad for your water table. It's bad for your health. Like, yeah, we shouldn't be doing that. They still do some shady shit. They're using a ton of migrant labor, just like large-scale farms, you know, they're not exposing them to dangerous pesticides, but they're still, like, not giving them health insurance, um, unlike their full-time employees. So, like, they're still they're still doing capitalism, is the point. Yeah, it's definitely not enough to stop there and say, well, we made all the... We did it. Right? Yeah, it's <laughs> like, if you go through all the factories utilizing child labor and the early Industrial Revolution, and you go through and make sure they have little... They have regular handrails to prevent... <laughs> 
prevent anyone from falling in and also little short ones to prevent the little kids from falling in too. It's like, great. I guess fewer of them are going to die while they're in here slaving away, but they're still here. Like, I almost choked in my coffee. Jeez, just picturing like a little three-year-old grasping at a handrail. Well, oh. I mean, yeah, like we're kind of, we're, we're, I mean, I guess you're right that like, yeah, it does cut back on a lot of stuff. Like, I mean, that's good. It's good, but here's the thing. If you actually take a closer look at their energy consumption, if you think about like things like prepackaged lettuce, which is a super energy intensive thing because you have to like cut it and wash it and refrigerate it the moment it's picked, then you have to transport it and it's still refrigerated. The bags have like fucking gas in them so they stay fresh. And they're made out of oil. I mean, they're made out of petrochemicals, you know? Yeah, exactly. Like that whole process. You get 80 calories from the lettuce, from pre-washed lettuce, but the whole energy of producing it is 57 calories of fossil fuel energy per one calorie of food. Yeah, yeah lettuce is really <laughs> always going to end up on I that. I mean, yeah, lettuce is a bad example in terms of <laughs> calories, but like the idea is that it's a crazy ratio and it's like just the cost of transporting and washing and refrigeration, like all that, they're still doing all of that stuff that is like really bad for the environment. And like, that ain't good. Right. Yeah. I think whatever system we put together for food production needs to, I mean, needs to take this organic approach of like, we're not fucking using all these, you know, pesticides overabundant. Cause there's probably some sort of ways to do it. I guess the organic guys do it in a way that like still, you know, uses whatever you need to use to to, to grow stuff, but they you need still to do that. yeah, they still do things. They don't just like yeah. let it go. Like they well, a lot damn, of times the they bugs ate it. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of times they'll introduce like competing species to like kill off those bugs and stuff like that. Like there's things you can do. Like there's you know maybe they do hand weeding or maybe they um, I think there's something like you like aerate the soil to prevent weeds, but that's also like okay. kind of bad for the soil. It's kind of it's a system of trade offs, but like. Clearly, one option is better. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. Because I don't, you know, I also don't want to be like a anarcho-primitivist too much and say yes. like, oh, we can't have like medicine or science <laughs> at all, you know, like, yeah, no, we exactly. do need some, some things, but we need to try to choose the like least destructive option. But it's not enough to just like get the, the capitalists to be nice enough to do these things. Like you have to take power from them or, or you know, or remove them from power if you want to be anarchist about it, not really have power, that's fine, but... You have to be the the people have to be the ones in control of it, so you know so that you you don't end up <laughs> carting everything around or or loading everything into big container trucks and or container ships and everything and trucking lettuce across the planet. Yeah, because again, this started as a super radical movement, and look what it got turned into. It's just basically checking boxes, you know, not not at all following the spirit of the law as just the letter of the law of like, oh yeah, we're we're technically organic. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like how yeah, how can we spin this to where we will go back to making a bunch of money and not have to listen to people complain so much about this this stuff, you know? Yeah, and like a lot of the big food companies like own organic brands and they're doing it so they can access more of the market and charge more for it. Like you were saying of the chicken factory. So like you're saying basically like Tyson could have <laughs> just rolling regular, you know, economy size chicken, ba- you know, bags or whatever. And then the the delicate, the, the ones that go to Whole Foods little, you know, <laughs> small organic ones. ones. 
And then, yeah, whatever. They can roll them all through the same thing. Or they maybe have like a subsidiary that it gets branded under even. So you don't even see Tyson on the label. I don't know if specifically them. But I mean, you know. No, you don't that, even that see definitely happens. Lays or what have you. The big the big guys that you know are. are <laughs> definitely the, evil. You know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You don't have those guys label on it. You have green. Yeah, I have you know, like Rosie Special Farm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it's really the same guy just in a different suit. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of times, yeah, like the, the really big food companies tend to have organic uh, lines. So, And there may be like a, you may have a different section on that, but, but aren't food companies in America increasingly under like just gigantic food conglomerates? I don't have the data on this, but from what like I've seen around the internet, yeah, pretty much all our food comes from like a handful of companies. You know, you got your Nestle, you got your... <laughs> I know that's a really big one. Nestle, uh, Pepsi, Frito Lay, Unilever, mm-hmm. Mars. Oh yeah, Unilever is like is that Johnson Johnson or is that a different company? Uh, I, I don't, don't know. know. They're all guys. There's only like five companies now. <laughs> but it's like you see. I mean, I've seen that too, right? That's what I was kind of basically referring to is those little charts that yeah. trace it all back to like the one, the the seven brands or whatever, and you're like shit. Yep, 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 yep. So let's go the opposite direction. We don't want to do that, right? <laughs> yes. Pollen spends a lot of his time at this farm owned by Joel Salatin. And this guy is crazy, and I love him. <laughs> <laughs> He's introduced, like, he, he self-describes as a Christian, conservative, libertarian, environmentalist, lunatic farmer. This is the guy that you love? Right? Like, I was not expecting to like this guy. I was so worried. But, like, he has some cool ideas. Let's hear him. What is what is Joel about? So, first off, his farm is not considered organic. But after reading about it, I feel like this is a really good model for, like, sustainable farming. Like, it's really cool. What what does he, uh, what does he run afoul of <laughs> to not be organic if, if, if like... McDonald's could run a farm and be organic. <laughs> it's because there's a lot of like standards that are, again, suited for a large operation. And he is not that. And so uh, especially when it comes to like meat processing, in order to be like USDA certified, like you have to have these facilities that can accommodate for like, basically a large scale operation. He's like, I just I don't do that. <laughs> is the equivalent is one equivalent to think of this like how they make uh abortion providers they try to make them have like hospital clearances or things like that like where it's not really appropriate for what they're doing but they're just actually trying to like legislate them out (laughs) i think that's a pretty good parallel uh the example the book gives is in order to be usda certified you have to have a bathroom specifically for a usda like inspector to come like check out like <laughs> and it's like if it, this is a small ass operation on my family farm i can just go to my house and go to the bathroom you know like yeah <laughs> there's no need for that and like you have to have all these really exacting standards that really are designed to clean meat from like an unclean system that we talked about last week of like yeah there's shit everywhere yeah there's tons of antibiotics everybody's sick like it's not a good environment where as Joel is taking more of a preventative system, as we will see, where he's like, I don't need all that stuff because I like do it right. <laughs> but then because he doesn't have that, then he's the bad guy. Okay, I got mm-hmm. it. All right. So I want to start off with some fire quotes from Joel. <laughs> Joel, is it his diss track? Yes. Yes. Well, did you know that diss 
is apparently like, okay, how do you spell dis? D-I-S-S? This is how I spell dis. But apparently the like older and like initially correct spelling is D-I-S. Oh, I did not know this. People apparently use both and the use of D-I-S-S is on the rise. Mm. So maybe that's why we think it's D-I-S-S, but. I don't know. I've never seen, I've seen D-I-S as a shorthand for like this, but that's very strange. Yeah. Okay. Fun linguistic sidebar. Yeah, you can, you can cut that. If you need <laughs> no, to. we're keeping it. Okay, so Joel's least favorite things include the, quote, Western conquistador mentality. Hell yeah. All right. <laughs> yeah, like, good, good start. He calls the food system a, quote, decidedly Western, disconnected, reductionist, Wall Streetified marketing system. <laughs> I mean, I can't disagree. <laughs> Wall Streetified is a really good term. I must just start referring to things I don't like as Wall Streetified. <laughs> and he like really sticks to his guns in a to a point where like he refuses to to ship the author a sample of his chicken or his steak. He says, you know, just because we can ship organic lettuce from the Salinas Valley or organic cut flowers from Peru doesn't mean we should do it. Not if we're really serious about energy and seasonality and bioregionalism. I mean, he's kind of true. I was thinking about that. Like, I would want to have some some fruit. regional <laughs> variety wherever. Yeah, wherever things are. Like, we would have to do some sort of commune level, like some distribution. Yeah, but like it had to be within reason. I mean, everybody can't be eating stuff from far away all the time. You know, you have you would have to say, okay, well, we're going to get this shipment in, and we'll have a limited store of whatever, and you know, we'll enjoy very small portions of. Exotic food A. <laughs> we go back to having oranges for Christmas. Yeah. Everyone's like, fuck yeah, oranges. An orange. <laughs> I mean, that's a little extreme, but I mean, I think you're right. We, I think whatever system we come up with, with has to address seasonality and local eating in a way that's not destructive to the environment, or at least not as destructive, because right now we're fucking jetting food around. Yeah, and and we're what the UN said we're 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 just we're just tumbling toward climate catastrophe. Oh, completely. Like yeah, they recently said you know we're we're going to go right past the already insufficient goals we had set for ourselves, <laughs> and we'll be lucky to like overshoot that by only a little bit. <laughs> oh, good lord! Great. And they're still phrasing it. it like we're going to take drastic action, and it's, <laughs> that's cute. Where is that going to happen? Like. <sighs> I don't know, man. Don't know. It'll it'll take you listeners out there like seizing the means of production for that to happen. <laughs> I think so. I think it's going to be a full fucking mass riot if we don't, because we'll all be dying. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, <laughs> Joel's farming method. He really, instead of focusing on on a monoculture of corn, he considers himself a grass farmer, and he practices what's called management intensive grazing. So basically what this means is he is always moving his animals around in order to practice rotational grazing. So that way they go into like a lot of detail about this, but all you need to know is this is the best way to graze grass so that it continues to grow and doesn't fuck up the soil. Um, you don't have all those windswept lands like you do in you know Iowa currently with their current method of corn production. You actually have like a healthy pasture. I mean, is this the basic idea of like crop rotation, like, like fallow field to graze on and like you, you know, you're obviously also shitting in it for fertilizer <laughs> and then, then you rotate. 
essentially, yeah, like this kind of focuses more on on the animal production side of it. He also does grow crops. He grows a fuck ton of food. Like he only has a hundred acres, but like he grows tons and tons of food and meat and the land is actually improving over time instead of degrading like a lot of farms through grazing practices that are like responsible he's able to get healthier cows he gets uh, better grass he gets biodiversity he gets that good humus that we were talking about last time that really healthy soil and and he actually kind of brought this farm back to life his family did uh because it was a really eroded and like rocky and had all these like ditches and stuff and he managed to make the land better through this nice now one um thing i think that you may run into right we may have the criticism is well okay he he improved the land there but like his yield per acre or whatever however much food he's producing there has got to be like smaller like it's got to be wimpier in scale compared to like agribusiness and stuff there's a reason they have the big huge combines and all their chemicals they have to produce more to feed you know the teeming hordes of the world uh compared (laughs) to this guy right like if we all do this uh isn't there going to be more hunger so uh, yeah you're right i don't think he's ever going to get to that scale but I mean, the amount of food this guy makes, I mean, to me at least, and maybe I don't have an appropriate understanding of how much food this is, it still sounds like a lot. (laughs) He's doing 30,000 dozen eggs, 12,000 broiler hens, 800 stewing hens, 50 beeves, which is 25,000 pounds of beef, 250 hogs, which is 50,000 pounds of pork, 800 turkeys and 500 rabbits in in one season man all right so that's a lot that yeah i guess i'm the same as you that sounds like a lot <laughs> there's okay so there's also because yeah, I'm, I'm just kind of i was kind of raising that as like a negative thing right but the another counter to that could be for one we could just we could figure out how to scale up operations once we've like determined what our priorities are right so like we know, okay, we're trying to do this organically. We're trying to do this in a way that's sustainable and we can work within those parameters to scale up. So if we're trying to scale up and, you know, well, we got to throw out, we got to just start using this big chemical thing. <laughs> and it's like, well, no, I guess we won't do that, you know, uh, but maybe there's way, there are ways to do it. Yeah. I mean, like I'm a person who believes in like nuance and, and, you know, not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. So like, I think maybe a good approach or like a, a starting point would be kind of the, the the organic stuff we talked about earlier of like okay we can at least agree on agree on these basic tenets mm-hmm. we'll never do these things yeah and we can definitely yeah s- start to play around with the scale of this like yeah if you if this works for your community you have one farm you have a few farmers who are like really good at this kind of farming go for it. If that's not something that's available in your community, like maybe, yeah, you have to do more of like a slightly industrialized process. Um, I guess, yeah, I, I think it's it's going to take some adjusting of those knobs to figure out like, all right, what, what kind of compromises are we okay with? And what are we not okay with? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that would have to be something that the commune decides together. I think another thing is, we don't have to scale it up to the level of uh, food production that we have now. Oh, I remember my point earlier. Ooh, okay. <laughs> Listeners, I forgot a point. We had to cut that. Um, 
I okay. Do you remember that tweet that was like taking a picture of the? I think it was like a, a packaged like pear in like juice, you know, and it was mm-hmm. like grown in Thailand, packaged in Argentina, and like they yeah. were eating it in the United States. Like we don't have to do that bullshit anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We won't have to produce as much like stuff that is solely there so that we can market it to people. Mm-hmm. We're growing a lot less bullshit food. <laughs> yeah, and and there's like we said, there's a place for it or whatever. It's fine to have like little treats in them. We're not certainly not moralizing to you as to what you do, but from the terms of like societal production and everything, like we just won't have a place for so many stupid things. <laughs> yeah, you won't have like a hundred different brands of what is essentially the same like peanut butter cup. We can all just agree like this one's good. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we don't need to do that. Yeah, yeah, we don't have to make like Uncrustables <laughs> or whatever other weird things there are. Uh, and if we are societally, you know, like trying to produce things in a, mm, you know, I guess in a more organic way, but in a more like sustainable and positive um, nutritionally way, thing for everybody, uh, we're probably going to need a lot less capacity for uh, producing meat. I think you're right. I think whatever we do, we're probably going to have to cut back on meat at the very least, just for climate reasons. Like we can't do that for a while, y'all. Like we, we got to stop for a minute. Uh, that being said, I, I think Joel's farm offers some intriguing reasons to keep animals on the farm that we'll see. Yeah, I don't think. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't don't mean to say that it has to be abolished all the way. I'm not quite there yet, though. I would be. I I'm open to those ideas. But yeah, let's get into it and then talk about it, I guess. I think the end result would be like, yeah, meat would probably still be more occasional, even if you do a system like this, like where you're still raising animals for meat. But it's it's in a, a way that also gives back to the land. So Joel really focuses on on moving animals in and out of an environment to mimic nature. And he calls this kind of interdependent system of variables, he calls that stacking. And I've got a couple of examples One is the chicken's relationship to the grass and the cows. So if you think about nature, um, like if you picture like a savanna, you get the herding animals out there on the grass. And then when they leave, you see birds come after it because they eat bugs found in the manure. And so Joel mimics this on his farm. The cows graze the grass and the chickens come in and clean up the manure from the parasites. Um, and the flies, so you have fewer flies bothering your cattle. That's good. Both of these animals deposit manure to make the grass like richer, and the chickens make eggs. And so you are not only getting good grass, you're getting good cows and good chickens. Another combination is rabbits and chickens, um, putting them together in a hutch, uh, or basically giving the chickens access to the rabbit hutch. A traditional hutch usually is super fucking stinky because there's so much ammonia in rabbit urine, so much so that like rabbits will get sick and you have to pump them full of antibiotics. But what Joel does is he introduces chickens um, to disturb the wood chips inside of the hutch and that produces compost and earthworms. And so just by like aerating that stuff, um, it's less concentrated and his rabbits don't get sick. And it produces earthworms, like, so that, I don't know, do chickens eat earthworms? It sounds like something they would do. Oh, they love it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> 
Same thing, turkeys putting them out in vineyards because turkeys don't really mess with crops, but they will fertilize your plants for you. So basically like utilizing every component of every animal, Joel characterizes it as letting these animals like live up to their kind of natural expectations. Um, He lets his pigs go chew brush down for him and aerate soil and, and things like that to just like basically create a very optimal environment for both the plants and the animals. Yeah, that's pretty good. Uh, uh, it's oh, complicated. Just, <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, there is, um, you know, because we were kind of musing last time about, well, it's, it really sucks, you know, all these animals getting killed and everything. At the end of the day, these, still, these guys do still get killed. I mean, I know everything dies. <laughs> yeah. But... Are you getting into the ethics of eating animals? Because I have that in the later section. Okay. All right. right. I guess we'll have to wrestle with that (laughs) when the time comes. We do. We definitely do. But for now, let's keep talking about pigs being happy. (laughs) Yeah, they do. That does sound like a better way to spend one's life. Walking around, doing things that you're, you know, that's more or less natural to you. Yeah, like like another example is he basically, instead of mucking out the, the manure from the cattle barn, he just puts wood chips over it. And this acts as like a natural heater for the winter. Like it just the floor kind of gets higher and higher. But instead of just like being gross shit, he lets the pigs come in and they root around for uh, corn that he hides inside of the, the, the bed of wood chips. And this aerates it and basically turns it into this really rich compost and kills any like pathogens that would be in there. So out of that, you get happy pigs, happy cows, and good like fertilizer. Weird. Okay. It's nuts. Like it's, it's really fascinating stuff. I'm like, I want to visit this farm. Like no joke. I want to visit it. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. Another thing that I think is really interesting is if you look at you know those numbers we were talking about earlier about how much food he produces. Um, you could say, oh, wow, you're producing a lot of food just off of 100 acres. And he would tell you, I'm actually using more than that because I have the farmland next door um, that he also takes care of. He considers the trees to be part of this, too, because they reduce the wind erosion of the grass. Um, the forest also provides biodiversity. Instead of having to use pesticides, your birds will just eat insects for you. <laughs> yeah, as they found out in the uh, Great Leap Forward You don't want to go against the sparrows. Never go against the sparrows. The sparrows will fuck you up. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Instead of worrying about, like, you know, classic fox going into the hen house, if you have a rich forest environment, they're going to stay in the fucking forest because they have creatures to chase. Yeah. it's They they don't need to come and and get your weird farm-raised stuff. (laughs) They have plenty of good things to hunt out there, right? Yeah, yeah. And if you took all this land and you looked at it from a traditional economic standpoint, which I think you were kind of immediately tempted to do, it's seen as inefficient or a waste of space. But if you got rid of that, the land would ultimately be less healthy. Yeah. And that's not, I think, something that... We don't factor in for that. (laughs) Yeah. Our society tries to ignore that part and essentially just externalizes that cost just says hey yeah mm-hmm. the land's fucked up that's for you guys to deal with we're making money you know yeah yeah it's, it's a hidden cost mhm that yeah that we're more and more finding out about and realizing <laughs> that we're going to all have to pay at once it's pretty bad <laughs> another thing Joel is really passionate about is transparency um he does all of his like meat production you can just like 
come watch it, which is uh, not the case in a slaughterhouse, guys. <laughs> Those are very closed operations. You can't just go down to your <laughs> to your local conglomerate slaughterhouse and bring the whole family. Uh, Michael Pollan was not allowed in there. He just had to have the guy who designed it describe it to him. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever seen some of those like hidden camera video sort of things that oh, people have to smuggle into those places because they're so barbaric and everything in terms of appearance and everything. Oh, it's pure dystopian stuff. Like we'll, yeah. we'll get to some of it in a minute, but it's it's pretty bad. But he'll show you. He'll be like, hey, here's 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 your cow. Um, here's what happens. Yeah. I think with the cows, he actually has to send those out to get processed because of USDA regulations. And they're pretty big. I mean, the chickens he will do like basically out in the open and you can come and help if you want. And yeah. So one one thing, you know, talking about seasonality, I think you're right. We're going to have to have some adjustments. But what I think is interesting is that some cuisines have already kind of adapted themselves for that. In Switzerland, apparently chefs are taught to cater their menus to the type of eggs you get throughout the year. Oh, okay. Because sometimes you'll have eggs with better yolks. I think it's like maybe during the summer or something. Sometimes it's better whites, whatever. And you adjust your menu. Like, yeah, I can't make a souffle if like my whites suck because I need them to be fluffy. And you just adjust per the food. And I think you can make that argument for a lot of seasonality. Yeah, and I would say that, you know, maybe right now, in our moment in history, we see that, yeah, there are some cuisines that do this or what have you. Mm-hmm. Most don't. <laughs> yeah, but I think that that's like very modern, I think, right? So if you were, I mean, I'm sure most cuisines had uh, seasonality be pretty central to their whole thing because, I mean, you had to do that. You didn't have flash freezing and stuff like, you know. Oh, completely. Like normally red meat is in the winter, chicken is in the summer, like People used to know, like, kind of the seasonality of vegetables. Like, a few things we kind of still know. Like, we're like, oh, I think peaches are in the summer. <laughs> Stardew <laughs> you know? Valley players know this stuff. Stardew Valley guys, players but... know what's up. <laughs> <laughs> we at least know when parsnips mm-hmm. and turnips are. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that would be something. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, that's something we'd have to relearn, I guess, right? Is Yes. Is the seasonality of all that. And how to how to work with that. I mean, I guess it's a worthy trade-off, right? It sounds kind of inconvenient, but you're sure you still have some frozen stuff. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, like, like we were talking about earlier, I think it'd be a bit of a trade-off of like, yeah, maybe you're eating, you know, a few more turnips than you normally do. <laughs> but I don't think it's going to be like sad dystopian, like it's potato for every meal kind of situation. Like, I, I think there's got to be a balance between providing that variety to keep people, you know, happy and and being responsible about it all right but let's get to something you brought up before which is kind of is it even ethical to eat animals in the first place okay pollen does a little research i did a little research about animal ethics a lot of these concepts are from a text uh animal liberation by peter singer not to be confused with pete seeker which (laughs) i that's how i read the name at first and i was like interesting (laughs) (laughs) He probably has some cool songs about animal liberation, though. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of different approaches to to animal rights. Like some people are more in in line with, okay, let's just improve the conditions because, yeah, the conditions are pretty bad, which we'll get to. Some people are against eating it at all for ethical or religious reasons, all kinds of different reasons or environmental reasons. Some people are um, 
really of the belief that they they should have almost like personhood rights. It really just depends on what your stripe is. There's there's a lot of different varieties out there. Um, Peter Singer's ideas are about, he kind of rejects the idea of rights-based values, but he is very utilitarian. Um, his thing is we should minimize suffering for the greatest good. I usually don't vibe with utilitarians. And yeah, it turns out I don't super vibe with this one either. Okay. <laughs> I think it is really reductive. He basically says that, you know, if we all agree that we should treat people equally, regardless of intelligence, then we should treat animals better than we do because some animals are more intelligent than some humans. He <laughs> uses the example of babies and mentally handicapped people. Well, babies, I mean, I'm not going to argue with them there. Babies are <laughs> fucking stupid. <laughs> babies are idiots. I will tell you that. Yeah. But like, uh, he, he puts up these like weird, like moral paradox arguments that I'm just like, fuck off. Like, he's like, what if you had to kill a gorilla or like a mentally handicapped child? And I'm like, shut up. All right. In his defense. <laughs> all right. You're, you're picking on him for his, uh, for his predilection or abuse that people will call this a disability is that he's a philosopher. Okay, that's that's like what they do. It is what they do. They <laughs> do they, come up with imaginary. They problems. traffic what a in life. hypotheticals. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's a that's a privilege if I ever heard of it. <laughs> what if so, I have to do with this? <laughs> so so try not to don't don't punch down on philosophers. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I, I haven't met too many that I'm into. No offense, philosopher people. You can hate me if you want. It's fine. <laughs> Philosophy has its place for sure. I'm just saying, like that that is the way <laughs> that a lot of philosophical problems are thought through is completely like absurd hypotheticals but it like tries to break it down to can we come up with any principles to govern what we're saying or are we more or less just operating based on feelings i think feelings have value though i think that's a really bad faith argument and i think it just doesn't account for i mean morals or like cultural values or like anything with nuance it's it attempts to reduce us into like honestly efficiency (laughs) and i don't think that's okay I think I think that generally <laughs> we're going to get so much philosopher hate mail and they're going to be really long and I'm not going to read them. <laughs> oh, don't delete them. Though. Let me I'll let Grady read, read them. them. Okay. Don't censor my mail. Uh, <laughs> you're like my FBI guy. I don't, oh, I don't Dan. <laughs> I don't know. I think there's a place for trying to figure out what governs thought you know uh, our thought process or our morality process like is there something that kind of unites different cultures and and stuff on that like you know how do we arrive at these conclusions and i don't think it has to be deterministic it doesn't have to be like oh well determine like how many experiences this thing has had the chance to accumulate and that's it's you know we can give a number to that and that's x and that's it's you know life value and if it's under 35 you can kill it (laughs) it's gone you can kill it and eat it you know it's not obviously not going to be to that level but i think it's interesting i don't know i just want to defend it like it's kind of interesting (laughs) to me maybe maybe not to most people to kind of like dive into okay why do we hold these beliefs about gorillas versus about whatever you know different animals too because like you know People will say, oh, pigs, dolphins, octopus, very smart. Mm-hmm. Maybe don't kill them. You know, <laughs> we do eat two of those. <laughs> shrimp, very stupid. Kill it as much as you want. And it's like, <laughs> well, that, you know, that must, there must be some sort of intelligence like factor at play or something factor at play or, or whatever, mammalian versus other things. 
No, that and and that is very common with a lot of animal rights activists. Like they'll kind of draw the line. Um, some people it's fish, some people it's mollusks because they don't seem to be sentient. So it's just like they're basically just chilling. Or bugs, you know. Or bugs, yeah, maybe. I see what you're saying. I think it has value. It is just not for me. I think I'm just a little too materialist, and I'm just like, okay, that that situation wouldn't happen. <laughs> you know, I'm like. I, I get very exhausted by by hypotheticals. Just I think too, like as a trans person, and like it just that there's so many bad faith arguments thrown at you where you're like, this isn't a thing, you know? Like we're literally yeah. legislating for for teenagers in like one teenager in a state is getting a whole fucking sports bill around them, <laughs> you know? Like that's what you get. For sure, yeah, I get that, and I'm uh, lucky enough not to be on the receiving end of so many. Uh, <laughs> So many philosophical exercises just trying to use, you know, reason <laughs> I'm just or whatever. questions. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> makes sense. So, anyway, to, he comes down on the side of animals should not be consumed. Animals should not be killed, hunted, consumed, anything. Okay. But he does so in an annoying way. I think his rhetoric is useless. But okay. I, I get what he's saying. I just, it's not for me. All right. One thing that I think is interesting is is he basically argues, you know, you you could take a look at at a lot of these animal rights kind of ideas and say, okay, a cow wouldn't be able to live without humans <laughs> at this uh, point. Okay, all right. You know, we were talking about the the natural state of a pig or a chicken or a cow. Like those wouldn't really exist in their current forms if it weren't for humans. And he kind of says, yeah, that's, that species probably won't exist eventually, which I don't know how I mm, feel about that. That's kind of law of the jungle sort of thing. Yeah, because it's like, I mean, some people, some like animal rights stripes think you shouldn't own any animals, including pets. And I'm like, I think pets have a lot of like value. Well, dogs. <laughs> We're that, pet so people. That same argument <laughs> applies to like most breeds of dogs are like. Not most breeds of dogs are in this case, but some breeds of dogs are like fucked beyond no reason in terms of like oh, their yeah. ability to exist. Yeah, we've we've fucked over like all pugs. Like those should yeah. not have existed. We, yeah. we really did them a disservice. The simple argument there is, yeah, okay, so if we just turned all dogs loose, they're gone. The pugs, no. <laughs> you know, and, and there are several dogs that, you know, dog breeds that would really struggle to make it um, out in the wild and everything. I'm just picturing my dog like going hunting in the fucking wilds. Yeah, Copper could do it. Yeah, he could do it. He's a, he fun. looks like a dango. Yeah, Danjin could not. To, <laughs> he would go make friends with the nearest coyote once, and that would be it. <laughs> oh my god, he's so stupid. <laughs> no, Remy and Higgins um, would not last five minutes. So when he says, "Right, okay, some species are just gonna go, and that's fine." I mean, couldn't you make the same argument about humans? Like, seems like we're going to go climate change. <laughs> yeah. I mean, ultimately, we're a species on Earth and we're going to fight for we're cognizant enough to try to fight for our survival or whatever, just as any other animals are smart enough to try to adapt to new conditions and things and, and whatnot and, and come up with new survival techniques. I don't know. Pe- pe- there's there's certain animals people are sentimental about. No, you know, uh, your your biologists and stuff will be like, "Damn, this species of shellfish is dying out," or your climate scientists will be like, "This is indicative of climate change or what have you." But if it's just like you know, an ugly fish, yeah, <laughs> it's not it's a just, panda. Yeah, some sorts of things just like ebb and flow, and you know, you really don't shed too much of a tear about it. It's just it happened. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, we're very selective about which animals we we empathize with. I think we've talked about this. Like, why do we think animals are cute? Like, what a weird trait to have. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, evolutionarily. Mm-hmm. So, he says, don't even, you know, just turn them loose. Turn, turn them all loose. <laughs> no more animal ownership. Yeah, just, we're done. He also says... And this part, I think, kind of rings true for me. I'm like, hmm, this one's hard to reckon with because he basically argues that since we can stop eating meat, we have learned how to get around that. We should, because at the end of the day, it's just a dietary preference, and that cannot be worth an animal's life. I think that's interesting. I think it ignores some, like, cultural importance of, of you know, meat eating, that, like, it's it's a ritual that goes back forever you know yeah i mean you do you don't want to be eurocentric or just completely casting out people's culture and be like well your culture sucks because you guys eat meat and i mean i don't know there's probably ways to do it where you gradually change i mean you, you will gradually change people's culture to move to a world that doesn't eat meat at all yeah and here's my thing Pollen actually comes back with a very good reply for this particular reply guy. His argument of, well, we don't technically need to, so we shouldn't. You could say the same thing about, like, sex. <laughs> you can artificially inseminate people, so why are we bothering with all this sex? Uh, because it's good and we like it. <laughs> well, that, yeah, I mean... It's a human need. So I think it, cooking is a human need. Is eating meat instinctual? I don't know if it's, I mean, evolutionary, like we're designed to also eat meat for sure. But I, I think beyond that is that we, our culture, our society finds some sort of value in it. And maybe it's over, I think it's gone too far in the other direction at this point. But I think there's still a place for it. Yeah, uh, there's probably some other good analogy that makes it a little more, I'm just saying that like, if you if you did not if you didn't teach a human anything, they would still like know how to have sex because they're the, that's true. It's, it's an instinct. I don't. I mean, meat. I don't know maybe. if the same is true about meat. Yeah. Yeah. Or maybe they mm. just survive off of whatever there was. I most people think it smells good. That's true. That's true. They have a what? I mean, that's an instinctual preference. Mm. Uh, you know. I don't know. Um, Interesting. Smarter people than us could probably figure yeah, that out. Yeah, listeners, if you have a better analogy. Probably already free. know. They already know <laughs> the answer to that. And they're just like, oh. You guys are dumb. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's also the argument that, like, even if everyone goes vegan, like, you're you're going to end up disturbing the environment some way by, you know, creating and using farmland. You know, there's animals that live on those lands. You're going to have to import a ton of food like we just talked about. Like, it's not gonna be completely morally clean like it's very difficult to do that <laughs> yeah that's true and i mean hell that's why the jainists like wear masks to not breathe in bugs like it's it's extreme to live in that way and that's essentially what he's arguing for which i don't know i mean i think that people should totally think about that and in my case i think it's just sort of using that as a way to be Aware, more aware of what I do and try to cut back in ways that I can enter, you know, in terms of what moral choices I want to make. But overall, as a society, maybe we don't have to. Maybe it's not even the wisest choice to go completely vegan. Maybe it's like it should be more encouraged or it should be like what a lot of people 
decide to do as a community and then maybe you have other communities that decide to be res- you know responsible consumers of meat or what have you I think yeah I, I I don't feel comfortable mandating people's food choices whether it's about health whether it's about meat or really anything as long as they're not eating like other people <laughs> it's just it is such a personal decision and there's so many factors to it like yeah I think we should create a system that overall gives people better access to to fresh produce and ethically farmed and produced fruit and veg and meat. Yeah. And here's the thing too, is you're going to have by default less meat consumption if you're doing away with like factory farming and stuff. And if you're, if you're democratizing everything and like if it's the commune or the worker state or what have you, that is organizing things, they're not going to be organizing things in a factory farm agribusiness sort of way and so you're just straight up not going to have (laughs) as much meat and stuff available and the the types that you do are going to be a la um joel's farm and everything they're going to be like grown grown like that or if if, maybe if you have a a commune that you know they they maybe they want to incorporate into their whole community we're going to start these organic small-scale you know, good for the earth ranches and stuff for, for our livestock that we're going to consume. Yeah, because to me, that, that goes back to Joel's point about transparency is that if you had a commune, like the way animals suffer in these meat production facilities, that wouldn't happen because yeah. like, it's such a closed system now. Like, you know, if all those were were publicly run facilities, you wouldn't be shooting cows in the head with a bolt that mostly kills them and sometimes doesn't that wouldn't be happening mm-hmm. if people i think if people even like had a more visceral experience in terms of like looking at their meat in more animal-like ways oh yeah because it's all prepackaged now yeah you know if they didn't think it was just this like clean little you know just falls off the chicken chicken uh, breast you know i hate when people don't eat meat with bones in it and i'm like get over it i mean if you have a sensory issue fine but like people will do that i'll be like oh it's too much like the animal and i'm like it's an animal guys (laughs) yeah that's what you're doing but yeah i mean i get it if that's your preference you do you but i think that by and large would would have an impact too is is having a more in touch with now i sound like the (laughs) now i sound like the (laughs) 70s organic people but Uh having a more in touch relationship with your food as it relates to the earth as it relates to in terms of animal products, the animal that it comes from, you would have a greater appreciation for it and less like less just simple demand because, you know, a lot of people when they're talking about, oh, I do want meat available. They're not talking about like, oh, I want to make sure that I'm actually caring for the animal or whatnot. Like however much I may say more, it's more often like I just want like meat available to eat when I want rather than thinking through the whole system and, and appreciating what that took for the animal to provide that for you. Yeah, because the system is so hidden away from us, like it's a cognitive dissonance of like, yes, but meat good, <laughs> you know, because we don't see that connection from, from you know, factory farms to table. It's just hidden. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit more about, about animal suffering, a great cherry topic. Um, you know, there's there's people who you know, talking about capacity for intelligence or like, well, you know, can they even suffer on the same level or a similar level to humans? I mean, the short answer is they definitely can suffer. 
they have a they can have a short memory for pain in certain situations like castration you know you can castrate and then they'll kind of go back to normal but if you think about an animal's experience like you can't explain what you're doing to them like they just like have to trust you <laughs> um you can't prepare them for any pain that's coming um they don't understand the concept of death or non-existence which probably is cool in some ways <laughs> yeah but i mean i at the end of the day, like all these arguments about like, okay, who is intelligent enough to not be killed or whatever. Our, our system as it stands is undeniably cruel. Like we should not be doing this to any living creatures. I'm going to give kind of the highlights. If you have the stomach for reading more into it, like there are lots of resources out there on it. Um, my notes have a few more details, but just kind of the overall state of these creatures is, you know, overcrowded, sick and miserable. Um, Egg operations are some of the worst. Um, They are so crowded that they can lead to cannibalism and they get scarred from the mesh that they're rubbing up against all day. 10% of hens just die, which is factored into the cost of production. There's like, yeah, we're going to lose 10% of them. Damn. Probably the most horrible part is, I don't know, there's a lot of horrible parts, but one of them that stuck out to me is when chickens, uh, when they begin to decline their egg output. They starve them, basically forcing them to eject all the remaining eggs from their body before they die. Is that for eggs, organic eggs, cage-free eggs? You know, I'm not sure on the regulations. I'm, I imagine, I you know, I imagine organic is, again, like we talked about most of the time, it's the letter of the law of, you know, they're eating organic corn. Yeah. <laughs> so... I think pollen visits an organic operation. It's pretty similar. Like it, they get like a few more inches of room, but it, it ain't much better. Yeah. Okay. I think this quote is really telling. The industrial animal factory offers a nightmarish glimpse of what capitalism is capable of in the absence of any moral or regulatory constraint whatsoever. It is no accident that the non-union workers in these factories receive little more consideration than the animals in their care. And yeah, no, I mean, if, if it comes down to it and they've automated everything and they've even found a way to, 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 to fake the demand end of the curve too, and we're all just superfluous, we could, we'll probably find ourselves in some sort of human <laughs> version of the chicken coop there. I mean, yeah, yeah. Full on matrix level shit. Yeah. <laughs> it's not far with the fucking metaverse. So. <laughs> cows we talked about some of the conditions last episode um but just you know a few a few slaughterhouse details i mentioned the bolt that they use like it's a pneumatic bolt they shoot into their head occasionally some of them will still be alive like on the processing floor so they have to like go take them out another example i think that is like really telling of the again the output oriented uh, mindset of capitalism is pigs Um, and a process of tail docking. So pigs are weaned very early so they can fatten more quickly. This causes them to bite at each other's tails because they like have an oral fixation. Because they are in such cramped quarters and, you know, are inside all day, they're depressed. And so a pig will not fight off another pig when they bite their tail and that tail can become infected. So the solution is to dock the tail. Uh, This is often mostly done without anesthetic. Is this cutting off the tail? Docking, yes, is cutting off the tail. All right. So it's a a little nub now. Now you may think, okay, great, no more tail, no more problem, right? Yeah. 
The real intention behind that is to make the remaining tail so sensitive that even a very depressed pig will fight off any pig that bites him. So it actually causes the pig more pain. It's like they constantly have this easily irritated spot now. Yeah, now if, if another pig bites their tail, it'll hurt like fucking hell. Wow. Like, that's just so horrible. Like, you've put the animal in a more vulnerable position instead of just, like, <laughs> looking at your operation of, like, man, maybe I should make less depressed pigs. No, we're going to do this fucked up thing to them. Yeah. Huh. There's still, yeah, that with that one, there's also a lot of, a lot of parallels. <laughs> <laughs> what if we just had people, like, work less and have like better lives and stuff no no No, let's no we're not doing that (laughs) (laughs) and and you mentioned you know even on joel's farm they're gonna have to die eventually and you know is that okay i think i think some animal rights activists would say no because they're still dying you're still killing them that's still bad you know it's it's essentially a nice life before the slaughter here's the thing i think it's better I think we can all agree. That sounds, you know, if it, if a pig literally gets to play and shit all day, the thing pigs like to do, that seems like the way to go. If if we if we are on track to keep domestic animals in existence, I think this is the the route to do it humanely, or at least should be part of the consideration. Do you think it may be like a stage thing? Like, okay, abolish the horrific conditions that we now have. Turn them all into happy farms. Let them, you know, go through their normal life cycle so that they're not biting everyone's tail, you know, and and do that. And then maybe gradually say, okay, you think we're to that point yet? Then let's, uh, you know, not you not exploit animals at all. I think, yeah, once we get into, you know, more of the Star Trek side of communism, if you got a replicator, you can just make meat, <laughs> you yeah. know? Yeah. And eventually, yeah, we won't we won't need to farm anymore, which yeah. would be cool. <laughs> and all along people can kind of tell us and I think this is fine, you know, and they they can say, "Well, you know, you really don't need to anyway." And yeah, yeah, you're probably you're right. right to be honest. But humans we're we're also kind of weak in some ways. We like have <laughs> desires that we want and we try to fulfill and you you know, you you know, you don't need like rice crispy treats, but they're good, you know. Yeah, I mean my Venus is in Taurus. I, I'm an indulgent person. <laughs> but the difference there, I guess, is your Rice Krispie treats, you know, they do rely on the suffering of the exploitation of the workers that made them, but they don't rely on killing anything necessarily. So <laughs> I mean, killing the environment, but whatever. We all, We're do all that. Doing that yeah. <laughs> but speaking of exploitations, I think it's important to talk about the working conditions in these, in these operations. Mm. They're horrifying. Uh, I've got some stats here. In a report by Oxfam America, slaughterhouse workers were observed not being allowed breaks, uh, often required to wear diapers, and were paid below minimum wage. A lot of these operations work on migrant labor, so they Mm -hmm. can do all these things to them with no consequences. American slaughterhouse workers are three times more likely to suffer serious injury than the average American worker. Oh, this one's horrible. The Guardian reports that on average there are two amputations a week involving slaughterhouse workers in the United States. Wow. That's that's a significantly more dangerous job than, say, being a cop. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> like, fuck, that's got to be way more dangerous. Yeah. Wow. Tyson, who already got a shout-out earlier, 
uh, largest meat producer in America. Um, on average, one employee of theirs is injured um, and is amputated either a finger or a limb per month. Their their days since last amputation sign just it's always stays. like thirty. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> they don't have like a, a third digit on there at all on their little. <laughs> They've never gotten there. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> uh. And also there's a big uh, psychological impact. Uh, Often full-time slaughterhouse workers become kind of sadistic. You're you're hired to kill animals, um, things that are, you know, gentle. Pigs and cows, you know, will come up to you and nuzzle you, and then you have to kill them. And there's a lot of uh, emotional dissonance. And so you see high rates of domestic violence, uh, social withdrawal, anxiety, drug and alcohol abuse, and PTSD. Yeah, I was thinking about that as we were describing this. It um, it's kind of, it does sound like it is a difficult job to do emotionally. Probably not one we want to put anyone through the commune, you know, in the commune through. You know, we don't want to put them through that. Uh, having to do that to provide for people, it seems like it kind of sucks. Yeah, and that's the thing is like when you operate these scales, you're required to do that because demand is so high. Um, but if you are in a society where, yeah, meat is less common and you are not working at these massive industrial scales, you can afford to rotate people out of that position potentially. You know, that that's one thing like Joel really emphasizes on his farm is that like, yeah, you know, this is this is low scale because like I want us to think about what it means to kill a chicken and like we we can't like if I had to scale up, someone would have to do this every day and that's not good for them. So I think we have to take that into consideration too. Yeah. I don't know. That makes me think (laughs) more along the lines of like, it's not good for him, man. Should we make him do it once? Yeah, that's a good point. Like maybe it's just not worth it at the end. And, you know, I think that's, and then I think we have to wrestle with the, maybe they, maybe cows and chickens don't exist anymore. (laughs) Or they, you know, we let the remaining ones die off of old age or something. Yeah. Mm. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I liked my idea of stagism earlier of like I like that too. I think that's really smart. Do one then the other. Maybe, maybe it probably has a fatal flaw that I'm not thinking of. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, you know what'll make you feel better is I basically wrote the same thing in my next section which is called Now What? <laughs> All right. <laughs> <laughs> now that we've bummed you out. <laughs> I've I basically broke it down into what I consider, you know, short-term individual steps, you know, kind of the medium term and then longer term stuff. So Individually, if you personally are really affected by this information and you're like, fuck, I got to change the way I eat, (laughs) feel free to do that or don't. It's okay. If you're interested, uh, you can do things like joining a CSA, uh, which is a community supported agriculture. Uh, Basically, it's like a subscription service to a local grower. Uh, I used to live in Denton and they they had one in there that was pretty cool. Um, it's, It's seasonal cooking. You know, you'll get turnips every week for a few months and then you'll get whatever and like it's pretty cool huh okay there's also obviously shopping at farmers markets and really looking for those kinds of foods that are grown responsibly things like that Um, like we've talked about eating less meat probably a good idea environmentally and maybe for you ethically as well yeah and it's you know no shade if it's not like it's It's cool if it's not different people (laughs) have different ways about it i'm someone who agonizes about it we were just talking the other day how i like tend to let guilt get to me more than other people so maybe that's <laughs> part of it <laughs> i'm a shithead 
Uh, we like both had very different responses to being raised Catholic. I ejected that guilt out of my body as soon as I realized I could. I was like, oh, fuck yeah. <laughs> it's gone. <laughs> I I think it makes me more reflective. I, I don't know. It forces me to be more reflective when I otherwise wouldn't. Well, I had a very like too guilty relationship with it like yeah. when I was younger. So I yeah. was like, well, I'm going to stop now. <laughs> yeah, no, it makes sense. <laughs> okay. Some kind of uh, slightly more ambitious ideas, if you want to take some steps, would probably be to uh, join or start a community garden or a community fridge or mutual aid in general, finding a way to uh, provide food for your area. I'd also note that community fridges often are in desperate need of fresh food instead of just canned. So if you're doing that, do that. Yeah, yeah. Longer term stuff, I mean... (laughs) I think we both have been talking about it. We got to get rid of capitalism, guys. I don't know about y'all, but. <laughs> we got to seize the means of production. Mm-hmm. You know, yada, yada. Yeah. <laughs> However you do it. Do it through the labor unions. We got the Starbucks unions happening. We got the Amazon unions happening. Hell it's yeah. happening. You know, it's kicking off in different places. And hey, maybe it, you know, collapses here in a little while. We're used to that. But maybe it doesn't. <laughs> you know, take off that way or. Just fucking do the damn thing with anarcho-communism or put together your vanguard party. Do whatever. But do take it however over. you want to get there. <laughs> we got we to gotta get rid of the bastards that are marching us toward climate extinction. And, and I think that was my big takeaway from what I wanted it to be the big takeaway, at least from these episodes. So maybe I failed at it. But <laughs> <laughs> basically, as long as profit slash yield is the goal. Our food system will remain fucked. It will remain fucked in all of the different ways we have talked about, ethically, environmentally, health-wise, just, just bad. It'll be bad. Yeah. <laughs> I, and I, no, I think you did a good job of, of explaining hey, that because we raised it several times. It's like, hey, but what about efficiency? And, so, and we just kind of mm-hmm. have to say like, yes, if, you're, if your yardstick is capital sufficiency, keep doing what you're doing until... We're all dead. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're going to be great. <laughs> efficient up until the um, up until the point that the planet boils. But and, and this system cannot be asked to be nice and get away from that because it's like systemically impossible for it to do so. No, I mean they're they're beholden to their system of profit. It's like in Futurama where they, you know, they trot out the 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 vegans come out and they're like, we taught this lion to eat tofu. <laughs> Like, the line cannot do that. Capitalism cannot just say, oh, never mind. We're not going to be efficient. Like, it has to do that. <laughs> so, yeah, like, capitalism is not going to be nice to you unless they see some sort of other angle they can play at it. But it's, it's not going to change. The overall, this huge food system, this complicated thing that it's built, that's not just going to change because, you know, we, we pass some regulations or something. Like, we have to take the wheel away from them break the wheel or take it or whatever they can't be driving this whole thing for sure we gotta push them out of the car (laughs) yes at high speeds (laughs) absolutely or reformist maybe we'll slow down a little bit before we push them out either way yeah we we come to a rolling stop and (laughs) shove them out i think in americans where they like dive out of the oh they're always jumping out of cars yeah Um, oh, quick note before I forget. If you're mm-hmm. asking, Christine, there is a whole section of this book you didn't cover. That's because Michael Pollan goes hunting and he gets really poetic about it and we don't really need to hear about it. <laughs> okay. So hunting is inspirational. Uh, cool mushroom facts in that chapter. Some fun. Uh, I couldn't I, don't, I couldn't figure it oh, out. Oh, no. Don't. 
Some fun, fun guy facts? Yes, okay, you did it. Are you proud of yourself? No. Okay, good. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, if you're interested in that stuff, I mean, it's very nice writing. It made me get very emotional about an almond croissant I was eating, but that's all really it did for me. All right. (laughs) I was like, food is important. Uh, But that was it. (laughs) (laughs) I did have a question for you, though. Mm, Okay. This was actually inspired by a recent Trillbillies episode where they talked about urbanism. I think this is on their Patreon feed. I'm not super sure. But I was thinking how we usually set our utopian kind of ideas or projects. And and we did this with uh, our playing of The Quiet Year. We usually set those things in cities because, you know, it's easier to distribute. It's more efficient. You can say, okay, everyone live in this one building and we'll heat it. How do we deal with populations that are more spread out and want to remain that way? How do we deal with them in terms of uh, overarching food system? Food system, but you could apply it to really anything where you are trying to be more productive, you know? Uh, you'd still have this to rely... This is a big question. <laughs> no, I, I mean, I think you'd still have to rely on essentially villages, which mm-hmm. most rural areas have some place that, you know... They can do that with. I mean, so you'd have to distribute electric vehicles or something to them. Some we've sort already, of transportation. Yeah, we've done the work in. Uh, well, I'm thinking about in America, and maybe this isn't the case in most places, but in large <laughs> portions of the world, we've done the work of electrification. So, even in rural areas, you do have electric generation. So all you have to do, all you have to do, is wave your magic wand, <laughs> and uh, you have like, and and then you have. Renewable energy generating that electricity, so it's green, so you're good. Boom, done. This isn't even hard, you guys. Yeah, once you do that, you <laughs> have to distribute electric vehicles, you know, including like big ass farm style ones, because you got to do ranching things or whatever, not just like jacked up trucks for the city, but real ass pickup trucks and stuff and semis and whatnot. Okay, so you have to distribute that because those people do need to like get around on their, you know, farm to market roads and stuff. They're too far apart to rely on public transportation for most things. Yeah, if they want to go visit their friend in the city, they definitely can. But I think you're right. Yeah. I think you are still going to have some people at the end of the day, even if we make our city really nice and walkable and like beautiful and green and all those things, you're still going to have some people who are like, no, I want to live out in the country. I want to be myself. And like, that's fucking fine. (laughs) Yeah, I think so. I, I do know. I do note that Marx said in the Communist Manifesto. I want to say, and there may have been something in Engels's like Principles of Communism uh, about the elimination of the distinction between the city and the country. Yeah, I remember that. I think Kropotkin did a whole section too on on okay, how does this apply to rural stuff? Like, can they work together? Stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So it's a common problem. Yeah, and I think. <laughs> They were kind of saying maybe it ends up getting blended together uh, eventually or evened out. And it could. I mean, that's that's one route. I don't see a problem with, like, allowing that as long as it's in your network and not, like, you know, it's not just, like, hey, let those assholes <laughs> do something, you know? like A total separatist movement. Right. Like, you would want it to be, okay. I've still federated in some way. Yeah. And they have connections, too. Uh, the cities and stuff nearby like you would want to run train lines and stuff to these to these the village centers that we're talking about the little hamlets you'd want to have stops there 
uh, in your mass transit, not to every farm, obviously, but like to the local little areas. And then they have their vehicles to get there to what they need to do. You'd have, you know, you'd have to coordinate shipments between, like you were saying, the federations or the different, you know, socialist republics or however you're doing it. You'd have to have that. I don't know. You'd have more of a... More of a symbiotic relationship, maybe? Yeah, because I think the cities would be way more sustainable in terms of not just like being, uh, you know, leeching off of the countryside (laughs) so much, you know. So the countryside would be like more producing for itself and and self-sufficient in its way. And there'd be trade back and forth, but it's not like that they're kind of paying tribute to the the urban Mm -hmm. centers. Yeah, that's what I was was thinking about, too, because, like, if we think about an operation like, you know, Joel Salzman's farm, you know, that's like 400 acres total because he includes the woodlands in that. That requires a lot of room. Like, you know, city agriculture is only going to get us so far. Well, you know, and there's the Kropotkin sort of intensive thing. If there can be a way to do that that's not ecologically disastrous, then that would be... Everyone take your cat shit down to the... (laughs) The community garden. We all walk our dogs in the community garden so they can poop in it. We make our own rotational agriculture in the city. Yeah, there you go. I mean, that's real. You could compost, though. I'm just saying. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) It's not that crazy. (laughs) And that was just, you know, we were just thinking food production, maybe. But, like, you do have to integrate that into the whole system transportation but like healthcare, you know okay so you got to have you have to maintain local medical clinics at at those villages maybe uh like helicopter ambulances and stuff like that which i mean they can run on maybe a very small fraction of all the gasoline that we used to burn in the cars will be burning <laughs> in that but it's fine it's, you know because it's only that yeah so, you know, you, you can, you have to, there's all these different things that you kind of have to Allocation. find a pretty inconvenient solution for, I feel like, compared to just moving everybody to the one, you know, uh, base number one over here, our <laughs> city number one. Uh, but I don't know. I feel like you're right that probably people will desire that. And maybe it's another instance of, of two stages of we start out doing that and then gradually we kind of transition to a more whole planet because we got to be thinking totally in the future now, right? Whole planet sort of uh, planning of where are people going to live? <laughs> how are we going to do all this? You know? Yeah. Yeah. And th- that's the thing is, is my anarcho streak does not want to mandate where people can live. Cause I think that's pretty fucked. Like, I think there's a genuine value to, to being out in nature and like being in a small town. Like some people fucking love it. It's not my bag, but I get it. <laughs> what? Yeah. <laughs> I am not a nature boy. No, I am an inside cat. <laughs> no, I, that's just something I think we should think about moving forward. Like I would love to replay a quiet year, like in a rural setting and see how hard that is. Um, Ooh, yeah. All right. That's actually all I have. I want just I wanted to end us with some some country mouse and city mouse discussion. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right. That was great. Great. Yeah. I I just I think food production is such a common tripping point that it's important to talk about. Yeah, and we we kind of thought through some of the downsides, but some of the some of the kind of criticisms that the left gets about this sort of thing is like, well, you silly little dreamers, you haven't thought through problem X, Y, or Z, you know. So hopefully that gives you a little something to chew on between now and the next time your capitalist buddies come up and say, hey, well, (laughs) 
those farms feed a lot of people, you know. Or mm-hmm. what about bacon? It tastes good, you know. Mm-hmm. Like, don't you want a cheap hamburger? It's like, well, yeah, but I also want other things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what are we doing next week? Next week, we'll be talking about Hawaii and how it became U.S. territory. Hmm. <laughs> I bet that was bad. I, that's my prediction. It had a little something to do with friend of the show imperialism Mm. with special guest dole right yeah special guest lots of business interests so (laughs) weird how those guys always hang out together business and imperialism super weird they're yeah it's almost like they're the same guy with like a (laughs) a glasses and a mustache thing yeah (laughs) exactly all right so it'll be fun yeah great great fun (laughs) all right uh see you later All right. Bye. Bye. Hey there, comrades. Just jumping in to remind you of all of our social media. We are on Twitter at Teach Communism, Instagram at Teach Me Communism. You can shoot us an email. That's teachmecommunism at gmail.com. Any of those places are good to send us an episode suggestion or a question, anything you think would be useful feedback for us or just your admiration. If you want to admire us in a public manner, and you should... You can go to Apple Podcasts to give us a review. It is the best way to help people find the show. Love when people write and review us. Please do both. We are also on YouTube if that's how you prefer to listen to podcasts. Or if you know someone that's the only way they'll listen to podcasts, send them to our page. And we have a Patreon. For five bucks a month, you get access to our notes for each week's episode, including the backlog of notes, which is a very handy resource for up-and-coming commies. And at the end of the year, all of the funds from Patreon will be given to local mutual aid in the DFW area. So, ain't going to line our pockets. Finally, we have merch. Check us out at Public. You can find shirts and I believe also stickers and magnets and all kinds of fun stuff with catchphrases from the show or episode art, stuff like that. The link to that store is in the show notes, so check that out. Okay, that's all the internet. Join us next time for another episode of Teach Me Communism, where the class struggle is always in session. Bye, y'all.